last week, uh, during a portion of the service, uh, I was uh, back in the fellowship hall uh, trying to head off a plumbing problem. Uh, you may remember we had the, the freeze coming, and so uh, Dennis and Elaine had come up here and turned all the faucets on to drip a little bit. But I had neglected to ask them to turn off the ice maker. And when the ice maker makes ice... Uh, it just freezes enough to make the ice, then dumps it in the big bucket. But then as ice melts, it drains to the outside of the building. And of course, the pipe to the outside of the building froze too, which meant that as the ice maker was draining, it was coming out an overflow pipe and coming out the back of the ice maker on the floor. Now, we had a couple little containers there already from past experience to catch some of it, but I got back there really in the nick of time to avert a disaster. And so uh, I gathered up some big buckets and I shoveled out four uh, large containers of ice and carried them outside and dumped them out in, uh, in pretty cold weather. And uh, so we've, we've got the ice maker plugged in again this morning and there should be ice by the time we get back there, uh, but uh, it, we didn't get it properly turned on this morning. We had the wrong plug in the wall. So anyway, it should all be making. But in my absence last week, the uh, pastor made an announcement that he was making me lead pastor and I'd be responsible for scheduling the preaching so I think his intent is that y'all can hear me a little more and uh, he can listen a little more but I'm not going to let him do that easily. Uh, my, my job has always been to keep him active in the ministry as long as I can and that's still, still my intent. But I am excited to get started in the book of James again because when I looked September 26 last year was the last message we had from James because then there were several uh, Sundays that uh, the pastor preached, and then we got into Thanksgiving and New Year's and, and Christmas, and you always have special sermons there, and I preached a couple of Christmas sermons, but I'm, I'm eager to get back to the book of James because my favorite way of preaching is to preach through the Bible. I also like preaching through the Bible because uh, you can't get accused of uh, preaching specifically to someone when you're just preaching through it verse by verse. It's kind of like if you step on somebody's toes, it was the Holy Spirit's fault, not mine. And so I really enjoy that. But I want to kind of remind you where we've been in the first three chapters of James, and it's, it's inadequate really to sum it up on one slide, but we're going to try. And that in chapter one is that a believer should stand confidently. And of course, we're, we're told at the very beginning of the book of James, he says, Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into diverse trials, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally to all men, and upbraideth or scoldeth not. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that uh, asks wavering is like a, he's like a wave of the sea driven with the wind, tossed to and fro. Let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord, because he's unstable. Uh, so we're to be confident, but we, we're to know we are going to have problems, and we only need to ask for God's wisdom. And even if we didn't use wisdom the last time God gave it to us, he'll still give it to us again because he loves us that much. And so we're to be confident. And we're also to be aware of the fact that, that um, part of our confidence comes from knowing that we do not have to serve sin. And James tells us, he says, you know, what happens, sin comes when there's a perverted desire. He says, with lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin. And sin has, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. So there's a desire, there's a deception, and there's a death when we disobey. And so that was chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, 
we talk about how believers should serve compassionately. And chapter 2 begins with, uh, if you see someone come in and, and he's got on fine robes and goodly apparel, don't give him the really nice seat and make the guy that's in rags uh, sit on the floor and be footstool for the rich guy. Uh, everyone is, is equally worthy in the eyes of God. Now, the fact is none of us are worthy of heaven, but we should all give, we, everyone is a creation of God, and we should give them respect, and we should show compassion toward them. doesn't matter uh, how educated they are, what side of the tracks they're from, uh, what country they're from, what accent they speak with, how educated they are, what color their skin is, none of that matters. And then in chapter 3, he talked about the dangers of the tongue. And I told you uh, my story of how I went out one day in 23 miles outside of Nacogdoches, Texas. And I was trying to burn some trash, but a wind kicked up after the fire had started. And I managed to set on uh, fire five acres of, of East Texas pasture. And before the fire, volunteer fire department got out there and helped me put it out. Uh, and we talked about how James says the tongue is like a, a wheel of fire that spreads out and destroys everything. And so the emphasis so far is we need to be what God wants us to be. We need to do what God wants us to do. And we need to speak the way God wants us to speak. James, all throughout the first three chapters, sounds very pastoral. In fact, he over and over again says, My brethren, dearly beloved... He obviously has an affection for the people to whom he writes, but you're going to notice now that we open chapter 4, his tone changes a little bit. See, sometimes pastors have to say the tough love kinds of statements, and that's what he does in James chapter 4. So we're going to talk about conflict, and I think it's safe to say that every one of us has experienced conflict, sometimes within families, sometimes in work, sometimes with people out in society, and quite frankly, a lot of my conflict starts when I uh, open my mouth and insert my foot. Uh, because uh, the, we, where's most conflict really get riled up from? It's from what we say or what others say. And I think all of us can agree that we can't always agree. Uh, you know, we're all different. And sometimes we have to say to a brother, well, you and I will agree to disagree. Uh, it's because we're not going to see eye to eye on that. Hopefully we're all, James, by the way, has already told us in chapter 3 that one of the characteristics of godly wisdom is that we're open to reason. So we should all be open to the idea that maybe we don't know it all, that maybe somebody else has a point, that maybe we ought to go back and study that thing again. And, and, and we need to know that pride goes before a fall. And, and, and James warns us about the danger of pride. It kind of reminded me of a story that, there was a plane, and there was a minister, a Boy Scout, and a computer expert that were all on the plane. And at some point, the pilot came back, and he said, the plane is going down. And he says, we have three parachutes, but there's four people here. He says, but I, I have two kids, so I'm taking one of the parachutes for myself. And so the pilot takes a parachute, jumps out of the plane. Uh, at that moment, the computer whiz says, well, uh, I, I should have one because I'm the smartest man in the world, and everybody needs me. And so he grabs something, puts it on his back, and jumps out of the plane. And then the minister looks at the Boy Scout, and he says, Well, he says, I've lived a long, full life, and, uh, you know, you've got a lot of life ahead of you, so you should take the parachute, and I'll go down with the plane. At which point the Boy Scout turns to the minister and says, Relax, Pastor, the smartest man in the world just picked up my knapsack and jumped out. So pride does go before a fall. Uh, and so James has already warned against this problem with pride. And now in chapter 4 he's going to talk about 
where pride leads us. And where pride leads us is to this concept of uh, or this, the conflict that we get. And so let's look at this passage, and we're going to start at James chapter 4. Uh, and uh, I'm going to read it to you in both the King James and then the Lexham English because you hear a little differences. Maybe it will help you appreciate the passage more. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not even hence, even out of your own lust, that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Now notice the change. He's no longer calling them brethren. This is pretty hard language here. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of, God, of the world is the enemy of God. By the way, that means this statement includes Christians. He says whosoever. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us hasteth to envy? But it giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Let's read in, in the Lexham English Bible. My mouth's a little dry this morning, so I apologize. From where are conflicts and from where are quarrels among you? Is it not from this, from your pleasures that wage among your members? You desire and do not have, you murder and are filled with envy, you are not able to obtain, you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, in order that you may spend it on your pleasure. Adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whosoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture in vain says, the spirit which he caused to dwell in his desires jealously? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I want us to look at, first of all, the cause of our conflict. And let's talk about what he means when he says conflict. Hey, he uses the word polemoi, and you may have heard the term uh, in, in debate practices or in the practice of logic of using polemics. That's the, the ability to argue. It means literally to, in Greek to wage war. It's a state of war. It talks about a prolonged conflict, something that goes on and on. And then he uses another word for quarrels, the word makai, which basically means an individual dispute or battle. It's, it's like an individual flare-up or a single conflict. You might think of, of the first word as a word for war, and this is a word for an individual battle that composes that war. In other words, it's usually short in duration, but it's evidence of the fact that there's a long-term conflict underneath the surface. To sum it up all in, in one word, it's, it's discord. It's this idea of a dog-eat-dog, cutthroat, step-on-everyone world where everyone just wants to do whatever they have to, no matter who gets hurt, to get what it is that they want out of life. And so what we wind up with is we wind up with no trust, and we wind up with no love, and a friendship with the world means that there's really no, you have really no friends at all. Now that's really sad. I have to tell you that probably if I were to look back over the last 59 years, uh, the most significant thing I think that ever happened in my life, and that's, that's a big statement because obviously 41 years ago I got married and that was a big deal and still is a big deal today and I'm grateful for my wife. But I think maybe the most significant thing in my life other than receiving Christ as my Savior when I was nine years old was a Cobb salad at a restaurant in College Station, Texas. 
because I'd gone off to college and uh, I was, uh, at, while I was at A&M, I was a sophomore uh, going to college there and uh, I got roommates who were bad influence and I, I did have a lady in my hometown that had written me and told me where to go to church and I went to Beacon Baptist Church there and I, I uh, got to know the people there and, and so I would go there but I didn't see a problem with going to church on Sunday and then drinking and partying during the week. It just it didn't the inconsistency of that never really struck me because I kind of figured that you know what I did on Monday through Saturday didn't have a whole lot to do with what happened to me on Sunday as long as I got my homework done. Uh, and I I wish now that I'm much older uh, I wish I had some of those brain cells that I left behind at the bottom of a six pack at Texas A&M University. Uh, that's not a part of my life that I'm proud of, but I remember sitting one night because the, the Association of Baptist Students, which is our ministry on college campuses, it's the, the Baptist Missionary Association has on college campuses uh, to help students really fellowship and grow in their faith. And so the people at the ABS at my church had invited me out to dinner that night along with several others. And so I went out to dinner. It was at a restaurant called The Sabre. Uh, and it was right across the street from the entrance to the campus. And I'm sitting there eating a cob salad with these people who I didn't find out until later cared so much for me that they had my name on the director's door, office door at the Association of Baptist Students as somebody they needed to pray for. I'm convinced that's why I'm here today. Uh, but I, I sat there and was having a good time and it suddenly God spoke to me. Now, I, I can't say that it was audible. I don't believe it was audible. But have you ever had God talk to you in a non-audible way so loudly that it hit you like a ton of bricks? And that's what happened to me. I'm sitting there eating that chef's salad, and all of a sudden I heard God say, you're sitting here eating a chef's salad with people that care a lot more about you than the people you party with. And then he said, the reality is if you died today, Robert, none of those people you party with would even show up at your funeral. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I suddenly realized that I had been spending time with the wrong people and doing the wrong things, that there was no fulfillment in life because I had chosen to be a friend of the world and the truth was I didn't have any friends at all. And that yet there were God's people that cared for me. And that moment changed my life around. I had been fighting the Lord about the call to preach for three years and I quit fighting him. And I surrendered my life to the ministry. And it was shortly after that I prayed and I, most of you have heard the story so I won't tell it again here. But I prayed for God to take away the friends I shouldn't have and give me the ones I should have. And the next day I called my girlfriend and she just hung up on me. Hung up on me three times in a row. These are in the days before caller ID. So you had to answer the phone to tell that you didn't want to talk to a person, and then you could just hang up. And cell phones, by the way, don't have that dramatic effect that that uh, real phones had because you could slam it down, and when you slammed it down, you'd, if you slammed it hard enough, the phone would uh, would would ring ring a bell. In fact, is you usually slammed it down like this because phones used to be attached to the wall. Now some of you are too young to remember that, but they used to be attached by a cord to the wall. You'd hang that sucker up, and you'd ring the bell. It was kind of like going to the the carnival and you get that big hammer and you do the thing and see if the, the ball goes up and, and rings the bell. Uh, but 
uh, I found out that day that the conflict that was in my life from loving the world uh, caused me to not really have any friends at all. Now, how do we recognize signs of, of, of conflict today? Well, there's this idea of entitlement, this idea that life owes me something, people owe me something, the government owes me something. And you see that on the news every day if you watch the news. There's somebody who thinks they're entitled to get something uh, out of life. Uh, you, watch, you watch kids today and you see that uh, uh, if they're going to school, they feel like they're entitled to have the, the latest uh, branding jeans, the latest branding uh, sneakers. Uh, they've got to have a TV in their own room that they can control their own watching on. Uh, they get served good food and they complain about it and they'd rather have you know something from Burger King instead. And they, they don't want to be happy with that. Uh, and and th- then this idea that uh, we... If we have a team, even if the team loses, we should give a trophy to everybody on the team because we want them to all have a positive self-image. Well, now in real life, there are people who win and people who lose, and you have to work hard to be on the winning team, and it's not a bad lesson to to learn. Uh, But this entitlement idea has led our society into people going to debt because they want it now, even though they haven't earned it yet. Uh, they have inappropriate priorities. They, they want to uh, be lazy without responsibility. Uh, I, I was talking to someone the other day who works for the college system, and they said that you know, one of the problems with COVID, it has made cheating rampant because uh, if you're taking tests online, it's, and even if it's supposed to be a closed book exam, well, they can just go out and Google for the answers, uh, and it's really hard to control that. And there, there are whole... Uh, software industry springing up to to enable remote education and yet at the same time uh, keep from cheating. Uh, I know I took two tests this last year that basically had a camera on me, a camera on the screen, and a camera on the keyboard at all times so that they could make sure I wasn't cheating when I was uh, taking those exams. But Conflict comes in a lot of ways, and, and James tells us right up front, he, he asks what's called a rhetorical question. From whence come wars and fightings among you? And he's not expecting us to answer because he's going to tell us the answer. Uh, and he's going to answer it in verse 1, the second half of the verse. He says, Come they not even hence, even out of your lust that war in your members. Or as the Lexham English Bible says, Is it not from this from your pleasures that wage war among your members? Now we need to look at a couple of words there. The word desires is the word hedonon. Um, I'm sorry, I can't read the back screen very well this morning for some reason. It's, it's the word we get hedonism from. It's kind of this playboy philosophy that means that man's pleasure is the chief end of life. Now, by the way, if you, you've heard the word catechism before, there was a, a catechism a long time ago, one of the original ones, and the first question was, what is the chief end of man? And the answer was, the chief end of man is to glorify and please the Lord. That's, that's why we're here. Uh, but, but hedonism is this idea, hey, it's all about pleasure. We're only going to live for a little while anyway, so live it up and get all of the uh, pleasure out of it that you can. But notice what he says, it wars in your members. Now, this word members Melisin is one of the words that the New Testament uses for your flesh. It's talking about your physical body. Now, this is going to be really important. In fact, is I'm going to ask you in a, in a minute to get out some paper and a pen, and I'm going to tell you probably what I think is 
one of the most important truths for Christians to understand because Christians do not understand the difference between their mind and their brain. And I'm going to explain that in a minute because they are two very different things in, in Scripture. And Scripture is very specific about this. So get out and ready to write some notes. But he, he, our bodies become the instrument of sin. This is the suit we walk around in on earth, and so when we sin, we do it in our bodies. It's our bodies, by the way, that we get sensual input from. It's our bodies through which we receive a lot of the uh, temptations that we have. And so he says it's the hedonism spirit that wars in our members. Now, Paul understood this. In Romans 7, he discusses a problem that he has. His problem is that he wants to do right, but he can't. And he tries not to do wrong, but he still does. And so he says it this way. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. That means fleshly. Sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. He says, I'm doing stuff I know I shouldn't do. For that which I would, that do I not. I'm not doing stuff God wants me to do. But that what I hate, that do I. He says, I hate the sin that I'm doing. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Paul says, here's the problem. Sin dwells in me. Now, how is that? For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Now, where did he say the no good thing was? It dwelleth in his flesh, not his soul, not his suke, but it's melicent, his flesh. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would do, I do not, but the evil I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It's no more I that do it, but sin dwells in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Now, listen closely what he says next. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Now, the inward man, he's talking about his soul, his mind, will, and emotions. When he was saved by Jesus Christ, his mind was transformed and he desires to do the will of God. But then he says, but I see another law in my what? My members, my medicine, my flesh, uh, the physical part of my body. Warring against the law of my what? Mind. Now here's, here's the difference. Your brain is three pounds of wrinkly material inside your skull. It is a part of your flesh. But your mind is a part of your soul. The mind you can't see with a microscope or can't be found by a neurosurgeon. But we can see the brain. And we have this idea that memories and things are stored in the brain, and indeed they are, but it's our mind that's part of our soul. And he says, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, and he's already told us the, the law of God's in his mind. He's already told us that. And he's already told us the law of sin is in his members. He says, and bringing me into captivity the law of sin which is in my members. There he says it again. He wants us to understand that. In writing to the Thessalonians, Paul said, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says what? You are, you're, God made us in, in His image. He's a trinity. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. When He made us, He made us kind of a trinity too. We have a spirit, soul, and body. And whenever you see these three words occur in Scripture, it always mentions them in this order. In fact, for every one time the Bible refers to your body, it refers three times to your soul and it refers six times to your spirit. Or put another way, we are about 60% spirit, 30% 
psychological, because the Greek word for soul is suke, from which we get psychology. It's mind, will, and emotion. And we're about 10% body. Now, all of it's important to God, but obviously he places a priority on those things. By the way, this is why uh, I encourage people to think about courtship, because the initial stage of courtship is to read the Bible together, for the man to lead the young lady in devotionals to find out if they are spiritually compatible. Because if you're not spiritually compatible, the relationship should stop there. And a lot of young ladies make mistakes marrying some guy that doesn't even really have a relationship to Jesus Christ because she thinks, I'll fix him someday. And it doesn't work that way very often. And then... During engagement, you figure out if you're psychologically compatible. I, I had a professor at Stephen F. Austin State University, met a lovely uh, woman. Uh, they attended church together. They both had a similar uh, uh, desire to serve the Lord. Uh, but then they found out as they entered engagement and they started talking about their future that she felt she needed to go to the mission field, and he felt like his mission field was a college campus in Nacogdoches, Texas. And so their, their souls weren't compatible. So they ended the engagement. She went to the mission field, and he stayed there a professor but was able to share his faith with the students. And then the physical relationship waits until after marriage. And if we understand God's priority, it's always spirit, then soul, then body, we would understand that process of courtship. We'd understand music, too. What's the part of music that makes you, you move around and do your feet? Well, it's rhythm. Okay, what's the part of music that can be really sad and sappy, uh, like the old country western songs that you just got your mom out of prison and on the way home your dog uh, jumped out of the back of the pickup truck and got hit by the train? Well, it's a sappy harmony that they have. And then it's interesting that the early Puritans would only allow singing in the Sunday morning services where everyone sang in unison because they believed that was spiritual harmony. Now, I, I enjoyed listening to some harmony as we were singing some of those hymns. And boy, that last hymn we sang, so rich and deep in theology. It's one of those things that I, I, I truly love. But we need to understand this. So we're made in the image of God. So once again, the spirit, that's the part. And, and the only bad thing about this diagram is the spirit's actually the biggest part of who we are, and it's the smallest circle in the diagram. But... It's the part of us that God talks to. Now, God talks to the Spirit, but the world talks to our flesh. The world is it's what we see with our physical eyes. It's what we hear with our ears. It's what we, we touch. It's the taste on our taste buds. We get all these sensations coming in, and sandwiched in between the Spirit and the body is this soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions. It's where you think. It's where you feel. It's where you decide. And the soul really is the battleground that we have. And all you have to do is look up the instances of the word soul in Scripture and you will be amazed at how many battles take place there. Just think about Psalm 23, right? When David says about the great shepherd, he restoreth my what? My soul. Why? Because that's what gets messed up. That's what needs to be restored. Uh, in, in James chapter 1, we read the verse, uh, I receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your what? Your souls. In other words... If we meditate on Scripture, our thinking, our feeling, and our deciding will all improve. Our soul will improve. Now, by the way, if you read that verse in James chapter 1 in the NIV, it doesn't translate the word soul. It omits it. 
In fact, is uh, the last time I counted, and it's been a while, there are at least 26 occurrences of the Greek word suke in the New Testament where the NIV simply omits the word entirely. Uh, the people who wrote the, or did the NIV translation believed that man was two parts. He was a, a, a spiritual part and a physical part. But God very clearly says, I pray your old spirit and soul and body. We're a, we're a trinity. Just, or we're a trichotomy might be a better word uh, rather than a dichotomy. We have three parts rather than two parts. But it's important that we understand this and, and to figure out what's most important. Because to God, the thing he talks to, our spirit, is the most important. That's what gets redeemed the very moment we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, I think all of us will admit, if you remember back to the time you saved, you did not instantly become perfect in your behavior or your thinking or your speech the moment you got saved. In fact is, old habits are hard to get rid of, and I'll share a story about that in a minute. But in the Old Testament, you would have called the soul sometimes was referred to as the heart. Proverbs 4.23, keep the heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Now, there's two ways we can look at that verse. The woman's the heart of the home, and it's the man's job to keep uh, his, his wife safe and secure and to nourish her spiritually because kids come from her. But more directly to the point, we have to constantly guard our soul from listening to the wrong input. Because if we spend too much time with the world's thoughts and we spend too much time with the world's influence, then our soul's going to make wrong decisions. As they say in the IT world, garbage in, garbage out. And so our soul is this battleground of life. Now, by the way, one of the reasons fasting is important for Christians, and I know a lot of people don't fast, and I have really gotten more into this in the last six months. Uh, I typically uh, will eat lunch here on on Sunday. Uh, I go home. Judy and I sometimes have a date Sunday night, but I try to quit eating by about 6 o'clock. Then I don't eat all day Monday, and then by 6 a.m., Tuesday morning, I've gone 36 hours without food, and there's some remarkable health benefits to that. But it also gives me more time to focus on the things of the Lord, and I'm trying to make that a a weekly discipline. But one of the reasons fasting works so well is it cuts off a lot of our physical input. We quit tasting the food. We quit smelling the food. We quit looking at food. Uh, and we get more time to focus on what God wants us to do. And the longer you fast, the more opportunity you have to do that. Well, while our body is the temple of God, it is the least important, so much so, let me prove the point by reading what Jesus said in Mark nine forty seven. And if thine eye, that's part of your body, right? If your eye offend thee, pluck it out. It's better for thee to enter in the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and to be cast into hellfire. Now, I don't think Jesus is actually suggesting to anyone that we gouge our eyes out with our own fingers and throw them out. But what is he saying? He's saying it would be better for you to lose a body part than for you to lose your soul in hell. Okay? Very good uh, illustration of that point. So, again, the mind and the brain are not the same. The mind is where we think, but it's, it's, it's intangible. The mind of a Christian is free at any time to make righteous and wise decisions. The problem is it has two inputs. It has God's spirit speaking to our spirit, and it has the world trying to speak through its philosophy. So look what Romans 6 says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal what? Body. In your sin will reign in your flesh. Don't do that that you should obey it in the lust thereof, neither yield ye your what? 
members, that's your flesh, it's your physical body, as instruments of unrighteousness and of sin. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members, your flesh, as instruments of righteousness unto God. And here's where he tells us we have a choice. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. So by an act of our will, we can yield our flesh and our members to serve God. Christians are not the slaves of sin. Now let me again illustrate this. The mind is that intangible part that receives input and makes decisions. It's where we think, where we feel, and it's where we, we decide is in our soul. But the brain is this three pounds of wrinkled mass inside our skull that uses these electrical chemical processes to store data more efficiently than any uh, computer can. Now, here's an interesting thing, though, is that Paul understands. He says, I see another law in my members, that's his physical body, warring against the law of my mind, that's where he said the law of God was, and bringing me into captivity the law of sin which is in my members. And he said a couple verses later, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh or members the law of sin. So our brain is wired to sin, and I'll explain that in a moment, while our mind, if we're redeemed, wants to serve God. How many of you really want to live a righteous life for God? I know I do. I fail at it miserably. But I, that's how I want to do it. Now, let me explain this with a, an analogy. And first of all, you need to understand what happens in the brain when we take an action. Uh, you've seen pictures of the brain like the one I just showed you and had all those little wrinkles on it. The reality is every time I take an action, a set of uh, neurons form a pathway together and the memory of that action is stored. So, And what happens is if I repeat an action long enough, it becomes very easy to take that action again. So, for example, um, well, let me, let me go on to the next one and then I'll illustrate a little more. When we first sin, uh, let's, let's say we commit a sin we haven't done before or haven't done in a while, it's a little bit like creating a trail through the grass. Now, I was amazed. I, I, we had a dog when we lived in Duncanville, Texas. She was a Jack Russell Terrier. The little thing was only about that long, about that high. I couldn't have weighed more than, I don't know, four to six pounds. But one thing I noticed to my dismay was that she always took the same path from the back porch to the side of the house. And that little tiny Jack Russell Terry going over the same path again and again destroyed all the grass in that path. And it was just a little tiny hard dirt path. Well, then we moved into our new house and I didn't think this happened again and one day I, I lost my sanity temporarily and came home with a cocker spaniel for my kids. I've lost my sanity a couple times since then. But anyway, we, the little cocker spaniel, his, his name was Reagan. He was a very conservative cocker spaniel. But he, he went back and forth and he did the same thing in a different yard with different kind of grass, created a little path that was, that's still there to this day. The thing is, if we trot over something long enough, it turns from being a little strip in the dirt to being an asphalt road going down the street. And then if we keep traveling down that behavior, that little neural pathway no longer looks like a, a trail through the grass or an asphalt road. It becomes a six-lane superhighway. You see, every time I repeat a behavior, whether it's good or bad, I'm building and widening the neural pathway through my brain that makes it easier and easier and easier. So I'll tell you a couple of my Hall of Shame stories. Uh, after... 
and again, it's not something I'm proud of, but after I had that realization over the Cobb salad and I decided I really wanted to give my life to the Lord, I was with my brother one day and uh, we're seeing uh, one of his best friends and uh, over the course of that time, his friend says, Robert, would you like a drink? And I just said, yes, because it was a knee-jerk reaction from a six-lane superhighway that had been built there. And he handed me a scotch and water, and without thinking about it, I drank it. And then I only realized later what I had done. And that was stupid. More recently, I have uh, really tried to clean up my diet. I think some of you know I lost about 56 pounds this last year. And I'm working back out at the gym, and I love it. And uh, uh, working out at the gym is not always fun. I'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, one of the things I, I had gotten in the bad habit of doing is drinking Diet Coke or Diet Big Red. And you really don't need those things. The, the NutraSweet in them, when it gets inside your body, changes into formaldehyde and wood alcohol. Formaldehyde, by the way, if you don't know, is what they embalm dead bodies with. So you're just speeding up the process for the coroner if you're drinking drinks with NutraSweet. Uh, but I got in that habit of doing that. The interesting study is, is because it's a toxin and your body, your liver can't always eliminate it, your liver stores that toxin in fat, so it actually encourages the storage of fat to be able to hold the formaldehyde and wood alcohol that it couldn't get rid of by itself. So what they've discovered is that people that quit drinking diet drinks on average lose about 19 pounds just from stopping diet drinks. And you thought, wait a minute, that has zero calories. Yes, but your body had to store those toxins somewhere, so it created fat cells to do that. Well, so I started getting off of that, and sure enough, my weight started coming down. I started feeling better, started having less pain, which I'm, I still have pain when there's changes to the weather like we've had lately, but I'm doing a whole lot better. But the, the problem is, is that I still had those six-lane superhighways. So even after I'd started this process and I quit buying it, quit bringing the drink home, we'd go sit in Cotton Patch to have lunch, and, and when the waitress asked you what, to, what you want to drink, uh, knee-jerk reaction, Diet Coke, because they all have it, right? Uh, I don't say that anymore. I have changed my habits enough that I now say I want water with lemon in it because lemon helps you get rid of some toxins. So I order water with lemon. I don't want to diet Coke anymore. But it, was, it took me a while of starting to consciously having to make the right decision before the old six-lane superhighway was destroyed. See, the thing is, any highway left to itself will degrade. And if it's not maintained, it starts looking like Gateway Drive out here where you've got all the potholes and I don't know why the city of Irving hasn't done more than they've done. But at any rate, the thing is, every time we repeat a bad behavior, we're, we're widening the, a pathway that makes it easier to have that bad behavior again. That's why men have trouble getting over pornography, for example, because every time they do it, they lessen their resistance to the next time. And soon they, they can go looking at pornography without even having a thought about whether it's morally right or wrong. Kind of like I can have a thought about drinking a Diet Coke without thinking about its health consequences, without evaluating it in any way. There's good news, though, is that superhighways will break down if you create a new neural path somewhere else, and you can make it easy to make right decisions. You just have to keep making right decisions until they become easy. 
I asked the uh, last pastor I served with, and uh, I served with him for seven years, and he was a uh, pastor at our church for 54 years before he finally retired. And uh, I asked Brother Henry one day, I said, does sexual temptation get, you know, do you still struggle with sexual temptation is what I asked him. And, and I was, he was very honest. He says, yes, but he says, but it gets easier as you get older. In other words, the longer you keep making the right decisions to be faithful to your wife and to not look at garbage, the easier it, it becomes. Now, James sees this truth. He says, the wars come from pleasures or hedonism, this attitude that I want what I want and it doesn't matter what I have to do to get it, that's in our members, in our flesh, in our physical bodies. And every time we yield to that, we reinforce that behavior for the future. But if we choose, we can yield our members, as Paul said, to righteousness and unto holiness, and then we'll get different things. Now, I am hoping to go to the gym later today. Last week was very busy. We had other things going on. I didn't get to do that. But I got to tell you, honestly, most of the days I go to the gym, I do not feel like it. Um, I feel tired a lot. And I think, I am too tired to work out. But then some part of me says, no, you really need to work out. You're not going to keep losing weight. If you don't work out, Judy won't keep bragging about your triceps if you don't go work out. So you, got, you need to go work out. And I'll go up there, and I'm tired. And what happens, usually once I've warmed up my shoulders, my first exercise always is my favorite, which is doing dumbbell chest presses. And uh, I recently graduated from 70 pounds in each hand to 75 pounds in each hand. And it's, it's a struggle to get them up, and they kind of whoop me. But what happens is I get those heavy dumbbells in my hand, and I start doing the exercise, and my body releases adrenaline. It's called a catecholamine. And all of a sudden, I find the strength to do what my body didn't think it could do because I'm pushing it to do what it doesn't want to do. And then adrenaline gives you energy. And I find out I was too tired to go, but then I'll work out for two and a half hours. Uh, That's usually the length of my workout. I lift weights for two and a half hours, and I I love it. And I feel great by the time I've gone home, but I never feel like going. See, we have to get into the right behavior before we experience this benefit. And here's the deal. If I stayed at home eating carbs and watching TV, it would generate dopamine, which is a feel-good chemical in my brain, and it would probably generate, for briefly, a chemical called serotonin, which comes from the pineal gland at the base of your brain, brain near your pituitary. And it just kind of makes you happy and relaxed to sit there, uh, eat chips and dip, and, and watch TV. Okay? When I go to the gym, there's no dopamine happening for a little while. I get the adrenaline. I feel good after I've worked out, but I have to put in the hard work first. And that's the problem. We have to do the hard work first. So working out is not always fun, but it's definitely worth it. So James sees this. Now, just one other point, and then we'll be done. And that is, and and I'm basically going to stop the sermon halfway through here, the consequence of this conflict. The fruit of the flesh, he says, you lust and have not, you kill and desire to have, you cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. So the thing is, he's saying that we have the wrong wants. We want the, the carbohydrates when we ought to want the protein. <laughs> we, we want the sugary stuff when maybe we should be looking for 
vegetables uh, to help us or something like that. It's the fruit of illicit wants. He says lust brings about murder, covetousness results in the frustration of not getting what it is you covet. And it leads to quarrels and fights because you're never happy. You're never satisfied. They battle against you. And the problem is that when we want the things of the world, we're trying to fill a void that was shaped only for Christ. The real problem is we need to want God. And the problem comes when we try to fill our lives with something other than Jesus Christ. It's a wrong focus. So if I want to make material things my focus, I'll never be satisfied. I'll never be content. I'll be angry and depressed. And it becomes a trap. Paul spoke about this trap in 1 Timothy. He says the love of money, instead of our love for God, is at the heart of all kinds of evil, like fighting and quarreling, like envy and covetousness. In this hot pursuit of the worldly wealth, we pierce ourselves through with many griefs. Or as King James says, we pierce ourselves through with many sorrows. We're, we're after the wrong thing, and that's the problem. Uh, it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. So why do we pursue it so much if we can't take it with us? And having... Food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation. People that want to acquire wealth and stuff, he's fallen into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now when it says root of all evil, it really should be root of all kinds of evil. Which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So the real problem as he states in the last part of verse 2 of James chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask God is best taken with the rest of the context. He's not saying that, hey, the reason you don't have all the things you lust and covet after is because you haven't asked God for it. Because guess what? God is not going to always give you what you lust and cover after. If you, if you covet after your neighbor's wife, you can't pray and ask God for it. He's not going to grant that request because it's outside of his will. But if you were to ask for something that was good for you and glorified God, he's eager to answer those prayer requests. He wants to answer those. What James is saying is that you're not getting the right things that you should want because you're failing to ask God for the things that satisfy your soul. The only things that would satisfy your soul. So he reveals a deep conflict within us. It's, again, it's a prayer request. He says, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss for the wrong motives, that you may consume it upon your lust. So the correct way for Christians is to ask God for our legitimate needs, the things that we really need, the things that are really good for us. And you have to do that all the time. I have to make a daily decision about what goes in my mouth and what doesn't go in my mouth, what I should drink and what I shouldn't drink. And, and I have to keep making the right decision every time because I know the minute I start making bad decisions again, I'll trot off and, and widen the path to, to other kinds of destruction. So one reason a believer does not receive what he asks for is he asks with the wrong motives. By the way, this uh, word ask means to ask for yourself uh, and, and then so that you can spend what you get on your own pleasures. The word spend here means squander. And pleasures is the Greek word, hedonism again. So God never will answer prayers for hedonistic squandering, basically. Now, going the wrong direction, and I'm almost done, so I appreciate your patience. It's strange how when people refuse to listen to God's word that they still want him to answer their prayers. 
Isn't that amazing? It's kind of like your kid comes up and they, you have given your training, you've given them your counsel, you've done it over and over again, and yet they will come up and ask for something they know you don't want to give them, and you wonder why they would even think they could ask for that. You know, like if one of my kids asked for money to go buy cocaine, I'm not going to answer that. And yet we do this sometimes with God. We expect God, a, a pure gift from God, but we ask with impure motives. No, He wants our heart to be right when we ask Him. Uh, that's like saying, well, I'm, I'm praying that God will let me win the lottery so that I can bless our church. And quite frankly, if any of you suddenly get a million dollars, please come see me. I've got some suggestions for you. Uh, I, I remember... I know you. none of you will believe this. I have not always been as diplomatic and sweet as I am now. And I remember years ago pastoring a church in East Texas, and it was the week that the lottery in Texas had started. And I'm out at dinner with people from my church, and one of the deacons and his wife was sitting across the table, and somebody at the table asked me, what I thought about the state of Texas having a lottery. And I didn't even stop to think for a minute before I opened my mouth and inserted my foot. And I said, well, I think it's a tax on morons that can't do math. And to which the deacon's wife sitting across from the table told me, I just bought my first ticket today. So, yeah, it was kind of a socially uncomfortable moment there. Uh, and I've had to, uh, you know, maybe I should think, but I, I really don't apologize for what I said to her. Uh, but having wrong motives always leads us in the wrong direction. So here's an interesting story from history. November 1975, I can remember this event. Uh, some of you might be able to as well. There were 75 convicts in Mexico that started digging a secret tunnel that was desired to bring them up on the other side of the wall of Saltillo Prison in North Mexico. On April 18th, 1976, so this is what, six months basically, uh, guided by pure genius, they tunneled up inside a nearby courtroom in which many of them had been previously sentenced. To no one's surprise, the judges in that courtroom returned all 75 people to jail. And it's a great illustration of the fact that when you're tunneling in the dark, when you're misguided, it's easy to go in the wrong direction. And it ought to teach us that when people live in darkness rather than light, we go in the wrong direction. We're tunneling in darkness. And so here's what James says about that. You adulterers and adulteresses. No longer does he call them brethren, my dearly beloved. Uh, doesn't use any of those terms. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God. Now that in, its, that in itself is a big saying. If you're friends of the world. Now, that's different from just being friendly with people. Being a friend of the world means that you, you want the world in your life. You, you want to be a worldly person. Uh, and he says being a friend with the world is being at enmity with God. Now, if you can't understand that, I want to challenge you married people to do this. Look at your spouse and say, is it okay for me, is it okay with you, if I'm as friendly with other women, or other men as the case may be, with other women as I am with you? Now, I know what my wife would say to that question. She'd say, no way. That's not going to be okay. She would uh, be appalled at that idea. Well, guess what? God 
is jealous over us. Now, by the way, jealousy is not a sin. Let me say that again. Jealousy is not a sin. Envy is a sin. Let me tell you the difference. Jealousy is being protective over what really belongs to me. Envy is wanting what somebody else has that I don't. God says, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Why? Because when he has a relationship with us, he doesn't want you committing adultery with the world. He doesn't want you loving anything more than you love him. He wants to be number one in your life. And it's true. It's okay for you to love your spouse, and you should. It's okay for you to love your kids, and you should. But you should not love the world the way you love your God. That's adultery in his mind, and it hurts his heart just like it would hurt the heart of your spouse were you to commit adultery against them. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. But here's the scary thing about this verse. He says, whosoever, that means anyone, whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So anyone can choose to be the world's friend and God's enemy. That includes Christians. Now that scares me. It scares me because the times that I choose the world's pleasure over God makes me his enemy. Puts enmity between us. It shows him that I don't care for him like I should. So a horrible consequence that's even more bad than not having your prayers answered is that I could become a rebellious Christian who has an illegitimate relationship with the world and I'm at odds with God. I don't want to be that person. I've been that person too many times and I pray that God would not let me. So why can't we have both? Why can't we have worldliness in God too? Because just like your spouse, God wants you to be in love with Him. He wants you to be in love with Him only. And so that's the reason He uses the word adulterers because it's committing adultery to Him. Paul said in Romans 8, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Then he says this, Because the carnal mind, that is the fleshly mind, is at enmity against God, hates God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. What's the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to please Him. What do the the elders say before the throne of God in heaven in Revelation 4? For you've created us to please you. There's an old song by a group called Van Halen, and no, I'm not a Van Halen listener, but I think the words to this song are interesting. It's called The Best of Both Worlds, and here's what it says. I want the best of both worlds, and honey, I know what it's worth. If we could have the best of both worlds, a little bit of heaven right here on earth. You don't have to die and go to heaven or hang around to be born again. Just tune in to what this place has got to offer because we may never be here again. That's kind of the way a lot of Christians are today. They just want to get all the, they know they're going to heaven and it's kind of like now, I'm going to heaven so I'm going to do whatever I want because it feels good. I'm not going to be here long, I'm going to live it up instead of I'm not going to be here long so I'm going to live for Christ. You know, when we live for Christ, we're doing something that's eternal and we will enjoy its rewards always. But when we live for the world, you know what it means? It means that we're giving up eternal rewards. So whom do we really love? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, 
you can't serve two masters for either love one and hate the other or you'll hold on to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. How do you know which one you really love? Because we'd all like to say, well, I love Jesus the best. But how would we know if we're living like that? Well, here's the deal. How comfortable is the world with you? How comfortable is the world with you? If it, It's not a problem for a Christian to be in the world. The problem is for the world to be in the Christian. Now, the world... Um, if, if, you're, if the world is comfortable with this, it means that you're probably one of those adulterers and adulteresses because the world, uh, Jesus told us, the world's going to hate me, hate you because they hate me. He says, it hated me be, uh, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, because I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So if the world is comfortable with you, you've got a problem. If people know you're a Christian and they don't have any interest in Christianity or spiritual truth, they're going to be a little uncomfortable around you. How they talk. I don't know how many meetings I've been in. Somebody can use a curse word and then suddenly they'll remember I'm there and they say, oh, oh excuse me. Well, I can't excuse their action, but it's interesting that they take notice of, of, of my presence. Uh, Jesus isn't saying our goal is to be hated by the world. He's just highlighting the inevitable. We're going to make the world uncomfortable. Now, Next time we'll pick up here and we'll, we'll talk about the cure for conflict. But as we get ready to sing, uh, here's, here's what I, I want to encourage you. I, I love the, I think this song is appropriately titled for where, where we're at. I want to be faithful, don't you? I want Jesus to someday say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But I know whenever I hold on to a small piece of the world or I hold on to something that just gratifies my flesh and it serves no godly purpose, it's keeping me from having all the heavenly rewards that my Father wants to give to me. So since we're kind of in the start of the new year, here's my challenge to you. As we sing, maybe you should pray and say, like King David did, Lord, search me and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And then confess that. Confess what you're holding on to. Confess what you're, you're grabbing onto for the world. And I'm not saying, by the way, that none of you should have nice things or none of you should have pleasures. You should have what God wants you to have. That's what you should have. But God must be our first love. Let's stand as we sing.